Hello, and welcome to Learning for Life at Gustavus, the podcast about people teaching and learning at Gustavus Adolphus College and the myriad ways that Gustavus liberal arts education provides a lasting foundation for lives of fulfillment and purpose. I'm your host, Greg Castor, faculty member in the Department of History. As its name alone announces, Gustavus is a college with ties to Sweden and Swedish America. Perhaps it's no surprise then that it boasts a Scandinavian studies department. My guest today both studied in and now chairs that department, which is celebrating its 40th year in 2021-22. Dr. Kirsten Moody graduated Gustavus in 1998 with a double major in Scandinavian studies and English, and eventually went on to earn her PhD in Scandinavian literature with a minor in comparative literature from the University of Wisconsin-Madison. She returned to her alma mater in the Scandinavian Studies Department as a faculty member in 2010 with affiliation in the college's Comparative Literature, Environmental Studies, and Gender, Women, and Sexuality Studies programs. Her courses have included Childhood in the Nordic Folk and Fairy Tale, Scandinavia and the New Europe, Nordic Poetry, Diversity and Social Change in Scandinavia, Senses of Place in Scandinavian Literature, Film, and Art, a team-taught travel course in Iceland, which sounds to me fantastic, and Swedish language. She's also been active professionally beyond the classroom, presenting scholarly papers, chairing conference panels, and publishing book chapters in edited volumes, scholarly articles, and a translation of a long poem from Swedish to English. She's been uh, a participant in the National Endowment for Humanities Summer Seminar for College Teachers, uh, an institute on the centrality of translation to the humanities, new interdisciplinary scholarship. She's also had a Fulbright Fellowship in Finland, supplemented by a Lois Roth Endowment Award, been a visiting scholar in the Scandinavian Department at Berkeley, and more recently was chosen to participate in a graduate course on Populism on the Loose at the University of Helsinki Summer School in 2019. As I know from her work as a Gustavus prof and our conversations beyond the campus, Dr. Moody is deeply committed to humanities teaching and learning, and I've been looking forward to speaking with her about that, her path to Gustavus beyond and back, and the Scandinavian Studies Department she now leads. So welcome to Learning for Life, Professor Moody. Kirsten, it's great to have you on. Oh, Craig, thank you so much. It's it's so great to be here. Likewise. and. Uh, uh, my pleasure. And, and um, I should know I'm in Minneapolis um, podcasting from our fancy den and you're in St. Peter. And um, listeners, if you hear a bunch of commotion, that is because our condo is about to be cleaned and we're dog sitting uh, a wonderful golden doodle named Romeo. So there may be some periodic barking. Uh, we'll just we'll power through. <laughs> so bear dog with us. I, uh. <laughs> Do you have dog or cat? I can't remember. You know, well, I quite very quietly. I I just got a cat again. Um, really, in this last month, yeah, she's she's very sweet. So I had had a cat once before. I got oh. her the end of graduate school, so she was what, with me. What, <laughs> what's the new cat? What's the new cat's name? What kind of you cat? You know, she came. She's a rescue. She came uh. with the name Scotland. Oh. Okay. <laughs> and um, but but with the middle name Rose, uh, oh. you know, it, it, we could kind of moved to calling her Scotland Rose or Rose oh, okay. is, is okay. the idea. Um, she's a tortoise shell. Both of my oh. cats have been tortoise oh. shells. Yeah. We had a, yeah. We had a, I like that name. We had a cat. Oh, that, you, need, you need to change that to a Scandinavian name. We had a cat <laughs> named Cooper, a tuxedo cat for a while. 
got along with our dog. Anyway, it's good to have pets, especially during the pandemic. Um, so again, welcome. Let's start with the pandemic, which I, I like to do with colleagues and students. What's it been like for you? Were you? I can't remember. Were you on leave in any part of it or not? No, nope. I've been teaching um, through the pandemic. Okay. And yeah, it's amazing. We're coming up on on year two. Um, I know. I can't, I can't believe it. Yeah, I was reflecting in in class yesterday. I had a student um, in my class now this spring semester who was with me in my introduction to Scandinavian life and culture course that I was teaching that spring of 2019 when the pandemic hit. And that that class is I kind of joke that it's like, you know, 1500 years in 15 weeks. Like, it's <laughs> you know, it's it's a kind of it, it, it uh, you know, kind of cultural history through the lens of literature and and film. But we're reading really inter interdisciplinarily in terms of um, the, the kinds of uh, academic reading we're doing, some things from popular culture as well. Um, but. But we, when I, when we were covering the the plague, you know the the so called Black oh, Death yeah, in Europe, sure. um, I always show Ingmar Bergman's The Seventh Seal to oh, kind my of gosh. you know which is, he's coming home from the Crusades, Antonius Block, and you know returns to his home and finding it like this 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 sickness that that no one no one understands right, and he's having a crisis, this very existential crisis with with what he's just spent his life doing, um, yeah. you know, questioning the notion of what, how do the God students, re how do the students react to that movie? They, they, they love it, but it was the, the, the thing when the pandemic hit, it was just here we were watching this film at a time, you know, what people didn't understand what, what the, you know, what the cause of these great amounts of people dying were. And, Right. I think always when I've taught that film in the past, you know, and then we 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 try to understand, you know, think about how that changed Scandinavian society, European society, how long it took for things to rebound, right after, right. after the pandemic, um, or the you know the the Black Death, but um, and how society was altered because of it. Um, yes. And so it's just so funny to think. So I was reflecting with this student. Wow, you know, Hannah, uh, to say her name, you know, you were in life and culture at that moment. Like that was the very last thing we were able to watch together was that film. Wow. And, you know, we knew the pandemic was hitting. No one really knew what it was. And then we were all sent home for two, two weeks thinking, well, you know, this thing will be over in two weeks and then we'll come back and have classes right. together again. Yeah. When indeed now here we come into, into year two. Of, two years later. That's, but how that's, much more we understand now, right? Like I, and, and I've been listening so much about the hopefulness that we're moving into the period of endemic rather than. Yes. I mean, for all the, um, for all the awfulness, I would much rather, I think all of us have this plague. It's horrible, but then, then, then that plague that you, that Bergman's film is referencing. Wow. You remind me, one of, one of the things I, um, this is, this is a tangent, but one of the things I, that attracted me to Gustavus was that in fact, it's, um, it's Swedish connections or Swedish, I guess I, I thought Swedish connections, um, because I'm old enough for me, Sweden was, you know, Bergman, for sure, um, sexual freedom 
and peace, you know, anti-war. <laughs> so, and I was against the Vietnam War at the time. So, um, but yeah, Bergman, oh my gosh. I mean, there's not a Bergman movie I haven't seen, haven't loved. And that's a powerful one. Um, so you, were you teaching, once, once we had to leave campus then, did you, and then when, when you were on, let's see, you were teaching, teaching Swedish language online too, or what were you? Yeah, every every semester my course load tends to be two language courses and then okay. one of my so-called culture courses the the long list that you the, the lovely list that you presented here like Scandinavian life and culture, um, Scandinavian women writers, Nordic poetry, a course on the Arctic, the new, the new course I'm teaching on senses of place and Scandinavian literature, film and art, diversity and social change. These are things that I offer um, every semester. I am able to teach one of these courses in English. And so it's, you know, just a joy to, to teach them. And um, yeah, they sound great. Yeah, they're great. But yeah, the, in terms of my, I kind of feel as a professor, I'm, I'm always wearing two hats, my, my English language teaching kind of cultural literature, contemporary Scandinavian society hat, right? That, that I'm working right. with students with things related to that. And then I put on my other pedagogical hat and, uh, I'm teaching language, uh, the Swedish language at the beginning, the intermediate and the advanced level. And in our department, once students get to third year, so the advanced level Swedish courses, we've left, we've left any textbook or workbook behind and, and we're just steeped actually in, um, the, the topic at hand. So this, this past fall, my, my, my upper level language course was on, on Swedish poetry and music. Oh, That's where I taught the course on, on childhood and coming of age in Sweden and Scandinavia. So with students like kind of in Swedish working through children's literature, concepts of childhood, the rights of the child, how that's changed over time in Swedish society. And then Greg, actually, you know, another, another course I taught um, in, in Swedish what you know it's been a few years but i have done actually a bergman seminar um oh really yeah yeah oh. and that was you know i think there were i think there were 10 students in advanced swedish that spring and most of them were graduating seniors and you know Berg, i mean there's so much you can do with scandinavian film in general but oh my I gosh. showing them you know um i i we watched we watched some of bergman's scenes from a marriage Oh my gosh, what a movie. And, you know, here they all were right about to graduate from college, kind <laughs> of on the cusp of like navigating relationships and yeah. like, <laughs> kind of thinking, you know, I mean, I think as we do when we're 22, we think, right. oh, I'm going to do this and then I'm going to do this and yeah. then I'm going to do this and life is going to look this way. And I, I <laughs> constantly, one of my, the biggest jobs I can do as a professor is honor that, you know, those notions that students have, as I probably had to like, oh, this is the trajectory life is moves in, right? right? When in fact, I think one of the things I think we, you know, I think the liberal arts and a place like Gustavus, um, a college, this like way we really get to come to know our students. I think we have this really special space as professors here in this kind of setting where we can help them think about um, navigating life, like even when it 
you know, shifts and, ch- and turns and, and changes. And, and like the pandemic, yes. right? I mean, I guess that gets us back to the pandemic, but. I'm thinking, you know, it's, it's, I'm, it's, it'd be funny to do a, fo- I mean, I'm kidding, but a follow-up survey. Okay. How many students saw that movie with you went on to get married or, or, or are still married? I don't know. Yeah. I remember that movie well. It was amazing. But yeah, to the pandemic. So you were, you, I mean, like me, I guess we all had to teach online for a time. And what was that like teaching? So you were teaching language on, online? Was that was that crazy? Was it okay? Yeah. You know, in, in, in terms of the pandemic, like, of, of course, it, it meant we all went online. But I have found um, a few silver linings of, uh, you know, I never had thought I'd ever want to teach a college class online. Same here. Um, but uh, in in the language classroom, I found the use of Google Docs, like this live writing that students are because we kept, we, you know, we keep running notes on like I use that as almost like my blackboard. Oh. So I'm writing. I have my share screen open and and things that I would normally write up on the class board when we're going through verb forms or um, word right. order or something like that. Um, you know, I can plot it all out in a Google doc and share my screen. And so the students see while I'm doing that, we could talk it through together and then they have this codified kind of document so that they can go back to. And it's this long, you know, Google doc by the end of the semester where, um, not only my notes throughout the semester are there, like my kind of classroom notes that I would have otherwise put on the blackboard were we in a physical room together. But yeah. it's also a space where, you know, I always in the language classroom have students go up and do some writing on the blackboard when we're in a physical room together. Um, but I found Google Docs, like I have them do their writing there. And so that is actually a kind of space to really wonderfully engage with them in terms of like um, thinking about spelling or thinking about word order or verb form or all these, these, if, if you know what I mean, it's like, it's this kind yeah. of, it's this space that um, I just feel like they see their writing and can carry the memory of doing those exercises away with them in a way it's not just erased from the blackboard like right. they would be so, that's so you one think you might you, you think yeah. you might keep keep doing that maybe, I, think I might you know usually i'm yeah. a total anti like in the classroom i would you know no cell phones can be out yes. all <laughs> computers must be I know. <laughs> out in your bag so right. that you're not distracted by something else um yeah. you know of course with with academic accommodations and there are exceptions to that rule, but my classroom is always like, we're coming together and this is that space to be really, really present. Um, but now, you know, I do think that's something that I'll, I'll keep integrating even when we go back to fully in person. So that's one cool thing. And another cool thing, I think, um, I found, in some ways, very strangely, and this is both in the language classroom, Swedish language classroom, and in my English language, culture, literature, society classes, um, the breakout rooms. When students go into breakout rooms, I have found that sometimes students who are a little more shy, um, you know, like they, that they actually kind of Yes. Have sort of blossomed in that space because it feels a little more safe. You don't have to get like quite as close physically sitting beside someone, right? right? When you're having your discussion, there's still a kind of little bit of 
Yes, and I, I, I yeah, I was um, between people. Yeah, that's that's interesting. I was I was observing a colleague's class um, during during this pandemic or plague, and she was using um, colleague in another department, but she was using breakout rooms. And it was interesting that she was visiting, you know, one room and they, they were all on point and talking. And I wonder, yeah, because sometimes even in a small group in the classroom, some of the students are reluctant to participate. So maybe that's a, that's another silver lining here. I just, it's been very interesting to me to hear my colleagues and now you speak about um, what we might use, you know, or continue to use if, and when we return to so-called normal, um, because like you, I was, oh my God, if I ever, if I ever have to teach online, I'm quitting, you know, but here I am. And I, I know I'll use some of this, some of the, you know, some of the Google stuff you've mentioned. I haven't used breakout rooms yet, but um, the only thing I can imagine for me, probably, probably, for, I mean, the good news is, you know, if you had been, if we had been teaching you had been teaching language in person, they would be wearing masks because we have a mask mandate, rightly, I think. Um, but at least when they're online, you can see their their faces. Um, that was the only thing I didn't like about going back in person was, you know, the. I mean, I liked that that was a mask mandate, but not being able to see their full faces was was different, obviously. I agree that that I think is another another thing to mention, like like that, that I've always I've kept even as we've transitioned back to in person, if we, you know, with, with the masks, of course, I, I'm behind that too. Um, but I have kept my courses hybrid because of, of exactly your point. Um, okay. because students, when they're learning a foreign like language, a second language, they, you know, it's so you kind of want to see, <laughs> you want to see the person who's teaching you the language. You want to see how they're, right. they're shaping their faces. Yes. They're making this, <laughs> you know, this new strange sounding word. And, um, right. and so the hybrid online format has allowed me to see their faces fully and allowed them to see mine. Um, and in, in my language, in my non-Swedish classrooms, you know, I just want to see my students' faces. Like I just, right. you know, there's so much that, um, you know, I, I think to, to just, um, have, have time. I've, I've done hybrid now since we've been able to, because I appreciate the being together in person and what that provides and gives and offers, but also keeping the online because it, it, um, it lets us see see one another in a way. In the yeah, I, it's, I, I may. Well, I'm on leave right now, so it's. I don't have to think about this quite yet. But I, I may, I may do hybrid when I go back if we're still in this position for that very reason, because I do miss seeing their their faces at least at least once in a while, their full faces. Mm -hmm. um, so you, you know, you're teaching at your alma mater. Let's back up a little bit and, and, and work our way there. Um, when you were, when you were younger, first tell us a little bit about where you, where you grew up. And actually, you know what, before we do that, I'm, I just noticed the dog came in and opened the door. I, the dog is now out. I'm going to quickly get up and shut the door. I'll be right back. So sure. no, hang no. on. Okay. okay. Okay, we're back. He he's he's come into the room and joined us. So <laughs> anyway, he also somehow I thought he had shut the door. He opened the door. Um, so it's tell us a little bit about what you grew yeah, a clever dog, great. Clever dog, way much too clever. Uh, named Romeo, loving dog. What? Um, tell us a little bit about where you grew up. Yeah, well, um, you know, it's funny to be in ways I think about life, right? Um, but I was born in Mankato, 
Oh. And, um, you know, uh, my, my, my family moved, my, I was, I have a brother, I have a younger brother. I was born there. And when I was about two, my, um, my family moved to Egan, Minnesota, which was at that point in time, um, you know, kind of a suburb. It didn't have its own high school. Um, it was a big, people would, were going to Burnsville High School, which was a big, bigger high school. But both of my parents were from a small town and they wanted my brother and me to have like <laughs> an experience where we didn't maybe have to be the best basketball player and but yet we could still play on the basketball team. <laughs> um, and just, um, so they, so they moved us to Farmington, which um, when I was started third grade in Farmington, um, just north of Northfield, which right. at that point was a small town nowadays, I, I guess it's so different, you know, the, the few times that I've been back or driven through, um, but it was 6,000 people. So I graduated high school with like a class of 170 people oh, yeah. in, in 1994. And, um, so that, so Minnesota, Minnesota has been home. For a long time, I've stepped away (laughs) for periods and, and, you know, find myself here again. Were your, um, well, tell us a little about your, your, is your ethnic background Scandinavian? It is my, um, you know, my, my background is, I guess, primarily Scandinavian in, in terms of both, both the sides of my my family. Um, and my, most recently my mother's father, um, his parents were immigrants from Sweden and they they had a small farm south of St. Peter here in Wanawin County. Um, and so my grandpa, my mother's father grew up speaking Swedish. Like it was the language of his home. So he was, but he was one of those kids who started school and didn't know a word of English. And, you know, I think for him, he wanted to totally leave, leave the language behind, which he he did. I think that happens. um, Well, I think it's different in different immigrant communities. You know, I think I don't want to, and I don't want to say that even within an immigrant community, it's always the same, but for him, I guess that that's my closest connection to to um, to Sweden would be this fact that, you know, his parents came from there and he had that language. He wanted to totally forget that language from what I understand and didn't teach it to his two daughters. But, you know, so growing up, I had some of those cultural traditions and and practices had anyone asked me when I was a kid, oh, you know, do you know that you're going to become a professor of Scandinavian studies? Mm-hmm. Like I never, you know, I, I never would have guessed that. And, you know, Scandinavian studies kind of came to me. I didn't really seek it out. I I um, ended up coming to Gustavus. I had had family on my father's side who were also, you know, from a, a, a more agricultural kind of sm- very small scale farming background. And my grandpa, Moody, on my father's side, 
you know, said like, you, you know, I want, he didn't, he had, I guess, a good head for math and wanted to be an accountant, but he (laughs) had to take over the the little family farm. And um, there were two brothers, his, the older brother was, was in, in Europe in the, during the war. And um, so it, it kind of fell on my grandpa to take that, the farm over. And my grandpa said, you know, I, I want, all of six kids, I want you all to, to go to college. I want you to, to have those opportunities, but I did it. So actually I have these kind of funny, I don't talk about it often, but really interesting family connection to Gustavus in that, you know, I guess an aspect of this college and it's, it's history as, you know, like Swedish immigrants founding it, like a few generations removed, like, you know, I have, uh, my father came and studied at Gustavus for a while. He didn't finish oh, his I didn't know that. year. And then I also have a, a, two uncles who graduated from here and an aunt. And so they've really, you know, I have a family connection to the college. And so for that reason, I kind of resisted it um, until I, I visited. And really, I came as an English major. So English okay. liter- literature was what... Um, what I started studying here at Gustavus in 1994. Um, and then, but, but English, the English department at that time, I, it's very different now, but at that time, the English department, I think you had to take two years of a foreign language or Judith Fuller's, if you remember Judith Fuller, her oh, sure. linguistics sure. class. And so I, I thought, okay, well, I'm going to do the two year of foreign language track. And I started with Swedish and, you know, liked it. Um, but it wasn't until I took a course taught by professor Roland Thorstensen on Henrik Ibsen and Norwegian literature taught in English. Um, that I, I thought, Oh, because at that point in time, the English department too, it was like, you would only focus on British writers or English um, Americans. And, and there were some wonderful options like ethnic American literature, Florence Amamoto was teaching. I loved that course. And, um, you know, but it was really, it was very, it was very kind of Anglo focused, um, as, as an English department was, I think. Yeah, exactly. Until the kind of, you know, opening up of the canon. So when I took this Ibsen and Norwegian literature class, I thought it kind of dawned on me. I thought, oh my gosh, like if I were to read, if I were to study Swedish long enough and get good enough at it, I could read these literatures in the original language, right? So for as a kid from, and, and my favorite book in high school when I, you know, when I was in high school and was um, Albert Camus, The Stranger, like that. Oh, and I, and I, I knew, I mean, of course I understood that it was translated from the French. Right. Um, and it's, it was just, but it was a prof- such a profound book for me. And I, um, you know, but I don't think I ever really, at that point in time, it wasn't until taking that Ibsen and Norwegian literature course, like coming from a small town, right? Like, you know, like where I really started to think about, um, wow, like there's a, there, of course there's literature all over the world and all of it's written in a language that isn't English. And not that that's anything really that, that, that 
you know, it's rocket science. But I also think that, um, you know, growing up in the U.S., I would argue still like we are very focused on on ourselves. And I think, you know, I mean, on, you know, and I think there's great questioning going on and, you know, about who that self is, right? Like I, I mean, as like, we're, we're, we're really thinking about the, the, the peoples of this country who've been, whose narratives haven't counted for so long or whose, whose histories have been silenced. Um, right. That's a whole another, another yeah, debate. What, yeah. whether, whether we, even if we just focus on this country, well, yeah, who mm-hmm. are we, whose literature? Mm-hmm. The, it's so funny. You mentioned Camus, the stranger, um, I had, it wasn't serious surgery, but I, when I was in high school, I think when I was a senior, I had surgery. And I, this was partly the influence of a high school history teacher, still in touch with all of us are, who had him as a teacher, Mr. Moore, Stan Moore, who grew up in Minnesota, Minneapolis. Anyway, um, there I was in the hospital bed reading The Stranger, <laughs> which is probably, wow. so you were reading it in high school. I was reading it before you when I was in high school. Um, yeah, it's a heavy book. It's an incredible book. Roland Thorstensen, of course, is from, from Sweden um, and, and, and awesome now professor emeritus in, the, in, in your department. Um, so it sounds like, yeah, you didn't really, you didn't set out to be a scan studies major. It kind of happened partly at least as a result of that that course. Was there, was there a moment when you knew you wanted to go on to graduate school in, in Scandinavian studies? Oh, there's the dog. Oh, there's Romeo. <laughs> um, you know, Greg, honestly, my, um, as I was, as I was graduating my senior year, I mean, Roland and Roger were wonderful, as were all the folks in the English department. Roger, Roger McKnight. Yeah. Roger McKnight and Roland Thorstensen were my two primary professors in Scandinavian studies. And then there was just such a lovely group of folks in, in English, some of, you know, a few of whom are still there now, but, but most have retired. Um, but, you know, I just felt very supported by the faculty. I was more or less a kind of first, though my father had gone to college, my mother had not. And, um, you know, I think she would have thrived, but I, you know, she graduated college in the, or high school in the late sixties and didn't come from a, a, it came from more of a, a working class family. Um, and you know, so she did everything I think to encourage my brother and me to, to, again, to like receive, like to, to kind of be offered or find the, the way to, to go to college, to have the kind of opportunities she, she didn't have. No one even thought of like, <laughs> I think at that point in time, right. Like, um, like women going to college, even often you are becoming like a teacher and nurse. Those were your right. two options. And, exactly. Um, you know, and this was the late sixties. So, so for me, I didn't even know what graduate school was. If I'm honest, like I was, I was like hearing, especially friends in the English department saying, Oh, I'm going to apply to graduate school. And I kind of felt very, I was like, well, what you can go on. Like, I don't know how I, (laughs) how I even imagined people became professors, but I, you know, not coming from, I think an academic background, but always just being really interested in kind of the world and ideas and 
just kind of by my nature, I think wanting to try to kind of <laughs> keep learning, right? Like to yeah, keep that, learning, that. Um, that, that for me, but I had a great, I, I mean, my, what happened after, as I was graduating in 1998 is like totally a gift and serendipitously there had been an alum from Scandinavian studies who was working at a translation agency in New York, in Brooklyn. And she was going on maternity leave and they, she reached out to the faculty in Scandinavian studies at Gustavus and said, Hey, would you have a, like someone who's graduating this spring who might be a good fit to take over to do a, an internship in translation at a translation wow. agency, um, you know, while I'm on maternity leave. That's cool. And, um, you know, and I was made aware of this and I applied and I had an interview over the phone and um, there I was graduating in 1998. And, and within a couple of days after graduation, I was on a plane to, to, to New York City to do Off this. to New York. Had you, been in, had you been to New York before? I had never been to New York before. Oh, that's awesome. So you hadn't been to New York before. You're going, there you are, starting this, um, was it an internship or was it paid? I mean. Yeah, it was a paid internship. Um, the the woman who was the founder of the company was just awesome. She was so helpful. She was so smart. She had come over to study acting from Norway and um, was an actress and was pursuing acting in New York City and working as an actress. And But to make ends meet, started doing translation from, from Norwegian into English or from maybe English into Norwegian. Generally, a person always goes into the language. Where, you know, I never translate from English into Swedish. I always go from Swedish into English. Swedish so English. I, I would never do it the other way. Um, and any, And she just you know, maintained her, her time acting and, but then also kind of ended up building this amazing translation agency, um, that still exists in, in Brooklyn. It's called Ericsson Translations, Victus Ericsson. And she was so wonderful, uh, mentor for me when I was, you know, kind of coming out of college and, um, and finding myself in a wonderful big new place and um, was this was this had you graduated already when you yes, started the internship this was the you had okay after i graduated mm -hmm. okay so then so you're doing that and then how long are you doing that before you head to madison for grad school yeah there i i had about 4 or 5 years of work experience um between my time graduating from Gustavus with my undergraduate degree and then pursuing graduate work at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. And I find that time, those, it was four years, those four years I think are really, were really found formational, I think for me as a professional person and as a person. Um, but um, I also think you know, I, so I worked, I, I, I did a lot with, I moved back to Minnesota and then I did an internship in, in book publishing as, and found a job in book publishing as like a copy editor and doing a lot of language work. I've always been doing a lot with language and writing and editing. Yes. Um, so, and, and when I think more 
like when I kind of zoom out, I really think it's all about stories. For me, it's always been about stories. It's been about the written word, the story of the written word, but it's also, and I want students to understand this. It's about, um, you know, the stories we tell, the stories we're told, like who's told those stories, (laughs) where are they coming from? What, what stories are, have we been told, you know, about our, selves or our world or our country or our you know existence what is what's been told to us what do we tell and what like you know I just was talking about this in my senses of place in Scandinavian literature and film class um literature art and film class yesterday in class is I'm just like like what, like how we, how, how narratives and stories can continue to just be re-inscribed. And I think like, like, I think one of my biggest jobs as a professor is to help students question what those stories are that have been inscribed, what powers are trying (laughs) to, you know, keep them inscribed and how can we work to re-inscribe. Them. Yeah, um, I, I couldn't agree more. And that's, I mean, that's true. I feel that as a, I think a lot of us do in history. I mean, yeah. history has the word story in it, of course, but um, that word, but yeah, I mean, you know, what are the stories we tell about our past, right? That, that mm-hmm. are comforting and also distorting sometimes. Um, not all comforting stories about the past are, are distorting, but, but a lot are. Yeah, I hear you. I think that's, that's powerful. And I did notice that thread just in preparing for the podcast, that thread of stories. And I think you just gave me the title for this uh, episode. It's always been about stories is probably what I'll call it. (laughs) That's that's true of you. So after, I mean, at what point did you, I'm always interested in how alums come back to their institution, whether it's Gustavus or another place, how, how did that happen? What, what was the path back to Gustavus? Yeah, the path, the path back to Gustavus for me, um, you know, I guess I talked a little, took me through a kind of few different work settings in different places in the world. Um, and then applying to to graduate school thinking at first I'd just do a a master's degree and do just an emphasis on kind of a master's in Scandinavian literature Um, and I began that and loved the program and ended up um, saying to myself okay am I going to commit to the PhD or not I hadn't applied as you know, I just applied to do the master's, but I had been invited to stay to do the PhD. And I, um, (laughs) I decided like, okay, I'm going to, I think what I'll do is I'm going to make two applications. One was for the Fulbright program. One was for the American Scandinavian Foundation. Um, at this transitional moment between my master's and my PhD, um, and I, I was applying to, to go to Finland Um, I'd spent time in Sweden in the past, but I've been very interested. There's one poet in particular um, who is in the minority Swedish-speaking population in Finland. I don't know that many people know that Swedish is also an official language in in Finland. It has been since the the country was independent at the beginning of 1917. And after this giant upheaval of a, a civil war, Finland 
<laughs> became independent at that point from Russia. And, and there was a decision like we will have two official languages, Finnish, which is the majority language in Swedish. And that's kind of a remnant from when Sweden controlled Finland for so long. But there's a very interesting literature written by the Swedish language minority, and especially at this kind of turn of so-called literary modernism in like the 1910s. And I was just, there are a couple of writers in that period who I was very, very interested in, in studying further, um, men and women writers, both, um, though I focused my dissertation on a, one of the women writers, authors, poets. Um, but I also wanted, I'd started studying Finnish while a student at the mm. University of Wisconsin doing my master's degree and wanted to do, to do more work studying Finnish and also start to try to read and understand Finnish literature the, in the Finnish language, not the minority Swedish language, Finnish literature. So um, I just said, okay, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to make these applications. If one of them comes through favorably, because what I was proposing really was a PhD project, right? That I was going to look at um, right. literary modernism, poetry in, in Sweden and Finland and work them, you know, just kind of broadly and try to come, come away with not just focusing on writers writing in Swedish in Sweden and Finland, but also try to branch out and have a better understanding of Finland, Finnish literature, Finnish poetry. And... Um, I got the letter back first from the American Scandinavian Foundation and I didn't get it. <laughs> and then, you know, and I thought, oh, you know, um, I don't know. I just had a sense I, I, I would, I don't know. I just had a sense like I'd have a better chance at that one. And, and then got the letter for the Fulbright and had received it. And was yeah, that's great. That, that year at the University of Helsinki and that, really solidify. So I said, if, if this comes through, I'm going to write this dissertation that, you know, if this, if this application committee thinks that the project I'm proposing is a strong one and worthy of support, I'm going to commit to it. And I, and I did, I, you know, I did that year and then I ended up getting an American Scandinavian Foundation Fellowship um, the year before I finished writing my dissertation that allowed me to go back to Finland to the University of Helsinki. And then I also had time at Uppsala University in Sweden where I did oh, yeah. an undergrad. So um, as I was wrapping up my dissertation, I had a year um, away in, in Finland and Sweden, wrapped it up and thought, okay, <laughs> now, you know, I just was wrapping it up and thought, I'm going to apply for any jobs that might, that might open Scandinavian studies, as you can imagine, is a very small field. Um, right. <laughs> <laughs> I had taught one summer at the University of Illinois uh, I taught intensive Swedish one summer at the University of Illinois while I was working on my PhD at Madison. And they had, I think it was a three-year visiting assistant professor position that I applied for. And then there was also an opening in, in Scandinavian studies at Gustavus. And so... Um, you know, I applied to the, the two positions <laughs> that were out there, as I recall, as I recall um, that year um, to begin in the fall somewhere of 2010 and ended up getting an interview here at Gustavus and um, came back <laughs> and interviewed right in a, they're doing a 
you know, teaching in classrooms, I'd been taught to. Was that weird? It must have felt a little. Yeah. And then giving a talk, you know, I had to give a job talk and, and, you know, one of the conference was either 127 or 128, the biggest rooms in conference Victor Hall. And it was just, it was very strange. I think like it was, it was very strange. It was a little, sometimes it still feels a little time warpy, but, (laughs) um, there's one funny story I'll tell you because people might appreciate this is like, as I was coming back in 2010, you know, I was the class of the tornado. If I right, yeah, the 98 tornado. Like, and so there was renovation that had been done on the, the old, old, um, the old, the campus center, the jet, you know, the new Jackson campus center, the new CAF exists now, but yes. there, you used to be able to like, there's that walkway that connects the, the Jackson Campus Center and this Johnson Student Union, right? But yeah. you used to be able to go down um, on the and and kind of get through. There was a door you could go in and then go into another door. You could go from the old Johnson Student Union, and then there was a door that would go into the what's now the new Jackson Campus Center. So I went out the door from the one ready to go into the door of the other, but the door <laughs> into the other one no longer existed. And that was, so then I was like, time has passed, you know, this is, this is there, there really time exists and space exists. And, um, <laughs> this campus is it could different. be, it could have been, it could have been a Bergman film, the whole experience probably. <laughs> yeah, a kind of crazy surreal dream. Right. And yeah, it, you know, right. It exactly. Feels that way. It feels like, very much a gift it feels like such like I never would have imagined you know like I never would have imagined really that I would be back here teaching and you know I think the first couple years I was back I was still trying to wrap my head around it and coming back to you know this tiny it's like you know like this place that was very formative to me from you know from the ages of 18 to 21 Um, and then coming back, you know, in my mid thirties, um, it's, it's it's a gift, you know, I, what I love, I think is like, I can, I can see myself in the students. Some, you know, sometimes I think, you know, I was very hungry to learn. I was very, um, curious about the world. I'm still those things. I think, I hope. Um, and, you you know, and I, I just, you know, we have students, I think Gustavus students tend to be most of them like really humble, curious, hardworking, down to earth, you know, good, good people. And um, not to say that I am those things, but, you know, I mean, I just think that kind of like um, curiosity about the world and being ready to learn. Like, um, I, I know I was that way. And I, I see so many of our I mean, amazing students that way. And so they're, they're, it's great to get to work with them is my long roundabout answer of like, you know, somehow being back here. That's how I came back. It's so funny when I, um, I mean, there's something, something about, maybe this is true of all schools. I just don't know. I've never, I have never set foot back on my alma mater, Northern Illinois university. I graduated, I did my MA there, BA and MA, and I've never been back, not once. 
But there's something about Gustavus, and again, maybe other liberal arts colleges, and maybe other institutions too, or universities, I don't know where, people come back, not just come back to, to, to work at necessarily, but to just come back and visit. So I'm an oddball that way. Um, but it must have been strange at some level, and also, as you're suggesting, very, very rewarding and gratifying, as it, as it obviously has been the last 10, 12 years. What about, um, let's talk a bit about the department, because it's in its 40th year, um, but that's not really when it's, when did it really start 50 years ago or something like that? I mean, as a department, it's 40 years. Just tell us a little bit about the department, its strengths. And, um, and I'm curious too, I mean, how many Scandinavian studies departments are there at small colleges, even colleges with Scandinavian, uh, roots? Sure. Yeah. Um, well, I, I'll, I'll say, yeah, a few things about our department is, um, you know, the history of it. Um, and I, I think about Glenn, we have, you know, your colleague and mine in our department. My colleague, Glenn Cranking in, in uh, history and Scandinavian studies and Russian yes, studies. Yeah. Yes. We have in our, in our department right now, we have, um, Glenn Cranking, Dr. Glenn Cranking, who is, uh, you know, housed in, in history and Scandinavian studies. So he's over with you all in Beck Hall. And then we have, um, Ursula Lindquist. Dr. Ursula Lindquist is my, uh, my my immediate colleague in, in Confer Vickner, who she and I have very similar teaching schedules and, you know, do, do the work, the bulk of the work in Scandinavian studies is Ursula and me. Um, you know, each of us doing usually two language classes, one culture class every semester. Glenn teaches one history course for us a year. Um, and then now we also have a fourth person in our department, David Jessup. And David teaches um, usually two to four sections of, of language courses for us to kind of help keep. Um, we have so many students you know, taking taking language, and and so. But the original foundation of the department was um, uh, Roland Thorstensen. Dr. Roland Thorstensen was hired in. 1971, he began. So really, it's really the marking of the 50th anniversary of the first hire of a faculty person in okay. a distinct program that would offer courses in Scandinavian studies. And then uh, Byron Nordstrom, who was in history with you, a right. Scandinavian, wonderful right. Scandinavian historian. Dear colleague, yeah. Dear colleague. Um, was, you know, in a position similar to the one Glenn has now. And then the hiring of Roger McKnight. One, uh, Roger McKnight was was um, the, the final hire to comprise what became a Department of Scandinavian Studies. Now, Swedish has always been taught at the college, as I'm sure you know, as many people right. might not know, right? This, the, yeah, the college I, I, was yeah. founded by these Swedish immigrants. And, and I think that's so interesting, too. Like, that's maybe a different story but just the foundations of the college and and who these immigrants were and why they came and why a college had to exist that right like offered courses in Swedish um that like did did these folks want to stay separate from everyone else were they not able to integrate I mean I think that's I, I've been appreciating more and more the unpacking of some of the college's history and its twists and turns yes. and like why, you know, students often say this is a Swedish college <laughs> and 
and it's, you know, I love to meet them there when they say that, but it's really not a Swedish college. It's a college founded by Swedish immigrants, but let's take some steps back and think about who were those people? Why did they come here? Why, you know, who, who was here before they were here? Who was being displaced? What are the, I mean, it's a, it's a very complicated, complex history. And so, um, you know, while Swedish was always here is actually the first language that college courses were taught in, you know, Scandinavian studies as a distinct department or academic program really was something that kind of grew out of what was happening in the 60s and 70s when you had things like women's studies or African-American studies or, you know, and in talking to colleagues too, like in some in some places, there's a geopolitical right. Like there were State Department grants to support, let's say, Russian studies because they, yes. there was a desire to to know what was happening in Russia and have experts trained in in the U.S. who could interpret and understand, you know, the lang- the language, but also like what was happening in society. Um, so Scandinavian studies as a distinct department was kind of, I think, kind of coming on the wings of that moment of like, sure. and with a distinct purpose, it was what's cool about the history of the department, I think, is that it was a group of faculty at Gustavus who had the vision, there was a $10,000 grant from the American Scandinavian Foundation to start the department that helped hire Roland. And that distinct charge that they said when they said we want to begin an academic program in Scandinavian studies is that 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 program would focus on the contemporary on Sweden and the contemporary Nordic world that it would be very present looking and forward looking while also looking backwards to try to understand um you know that the the you know that it's not I mean I think sometimes among immigrant cultures and this country for the large part is comprised of that. And I think Americans are very curious about where they so-called come from. Right. But I think that there, there can be, and there is, and I think this is some of the unpacking and critical work that people in our department do is like unpacking nostalgia. Yes. Oh my gosh. (laughs) You're you're preaching to the choir here. You know, I mean, so I think that, 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 that's one thing we just really feel so grateful in terms of our current faculty. Now, all of us are doing a lot of critical engagement work with, with contemporary Nordic societies. It's not like a utopia, like, and, but we're always kind of lumped into doing work, I think about Scandinavian or Swedish America. And and even more so because we because of the institutions foundations as a right. as a you know institution founded by Swedish yeah there, there's a tension between the sort of you know heritage part right mm-hmm. and then the history and and contemporary the the part that always appealed to me I mean when I was uh, I hadn't heard of Gustavus growing up in the burbs of Chicago but you know once I knew about it I was applying for the position that that focus on contemporary or at least post-World War II, to the present Scandinavia is really appealing to me and important. And you do that. Yeah, yeah. And I I mean, I think it's just so, I mean, I want to honor this year as we're celebrating 50 years of the first hire for someone who could begin a distinct academic program in Scandinavian studies, and then 40 years once that 
actual department, you know, was established yes. with, the, with the original faculty I mentioned, and then I mentioned the current faculty today, that the people who had the idea, right, and the gift of the seed money from the American Scandinavian Foundation of $10,000, like that, that that group of people had the vision to to understand that the academic program Akistavis in Scandinavian studies should be um, about critical engagement, right? It shouldn't be just like, uh, you know, it should be it should be like the faculty should be critically engaging engaging with students about the contemporary Nordic world about as I said, right, the, the kind of moment we're in, looking ahead, but also kind of helping interpret. interpret the right, path. not just celebrating, uh, you know, sometimes it's an invented tradition too, as Eric Hobsbawm called them, called them. You know, it's not just about Ludafisk and San Lucia Day or whatever. I mean, there's a, you know, there's, there's a contemporary current Scandinavia where all kinds of stuff is happening, good and bad, as you're suggesting. And actually, I wonder, picking up on that just a bit, I'm putting you on the spot here. What are, I mean, if you had to tell, tell our listeners, um, I don't know, three or four or five at the most things about contemporary Scandinavia, what would you say? Oh, wow. Uh, three, I know that's an impossible five. question, but. What should what should we know? What should you know? Oh, great! This is like such a tough question because I I do find right like sometimes like it's so easy to essentialize and I'm so resistant of that. But um, it's uh, not you. You, I, you said go ahead. No, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. What were you thinking? Well, you said a minute ago. So I, mean, I don't know if you said it's not all. Rosy, but you know, I mean, for example, what about the what about um, you know the crisis of immigration that's that's occurring in 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 Sweden and maybe Denmark too. I'm not sure. It's certainly Sweden. You know, we think of these countries. At least I do, right? You know, all, all they oppose the Vietnam War. They're all all progressive. Nothing but progressive. But that's not true, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, you have. You have a lot of scholars right now in Scandinavia who are, who are just like I was, I mentioned the word nostalgia. I mean, you have, you know, these are nations. These are, these are contemporary nation states. They have long, complicated, complex histories. But, you know, I would, I guess I would make the argument that, you know, the narratives that the people there have been fed for so long. Right. That like I feel like the concept of a nation, it's like it I mean it, it it's it's a constructed it's a const, it's a ongoing um con construction. And so, you know, I think a, a lot of Europe is reckoning right now with um <laughs> these notions that that the you know, the, these are the people who belong here. These are the people who historically have dwelled here, who have lived here. But if you, if you go, if you go, if you keep going, if you keep kind of opening that up and opening that up, you know, for Sweden, I can say, for instance, you know, like they, they nowadays recognize their, their has historical minority populations. Um, and those are ethnic differences or cultural or religious backgrounds and different languages. Um, but at the same time, to recognize them, um, I think 
to recognize them is one thing, but to actually um, work with them is another, if that makes sense. Yes, that makes that sense. Makes sense. Yeah, it um, makes sense. I mean, for me, you know, I have, I mean, coming of age in the in the 60s in Vietnam and thinking about, as I said earlier, Sweden and Sweden being, in my mind, progressive in all things, it's been kind of eye-opening for me, um, you know, in recent years to recognize, wait a second, they're, 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 they're reactionaries in, in Sweden. Reactionaries can be elected there. There's xenophobia, nativism, I mean, all of the above. And so it's, you know, I think sometimes I've been guilty, I'm sure others too, of, of kind of romanticizing Sweden as this, you know, extraordinarily politically progressive, culturally progressive place. And and it is, right, in some ways, but not, not, <laughs> not in all ways. Yeah, yeah, I think that, that that's, that's very accurate. And I think it, it's, um, you know, I guess one one thing I could say, and I I still do know and work with Sweden the most, even though I, you know, have I'm constantly traveling to and learning about and teaching courses on, um, like you, like you mentioned, Iceland and um, and courses on, um, you know, I've, I've been we've been doing a lot on indigeneity in the Nordic countries, and and I've. I'm actually starting my senses of place in Scandinavian literature, film and art, like thinking about the first nations people. So mm. we're prioritizing senses of place among trying to grasp that among those folks, you know, before kind of thinking about the majority populations who are kind of the ones who, who are more. Empowered. Whereas it's different in Greenland, right? The, the majority of Greenland's population is, is indeed native green. Landic, whereas in Sapmi, with the Sami people, you know, they're living across the the geopolitical borders of right. um, these nation states and you know kingdoms of, of of Norway and Sweden and then Finland and then you can push east into the Kola Peninsula of Russia. So, um, I think maybe that's something that people people would would find interesting is that there's a lot of work being done right now, I think by indigenous peoples in these, in these nation states to, um, to kind of put pressure on um, what's happening to, to their communities in terms of um, land use rights, in terms of, you know, notions of like, like, like green, there's a lot of greenwashing going on. Like I think a lot of times people think of the Nordic countries as like, oh, they're very sustainable. I'm putting that in quote marks, but yes. you know, if you're building a dam through, um, or if you're harvesting timber um, for a big state run <laughs> lumber company, um, but it's, it's like displacing how the reindeer can, can dwell on historical Sami lands or you're building a dam through a river that's altering the ecosystem of you know yet you're saying these people have certain rights but that some of those rights are being infringed upon I think there's a lot of activism kind of going on in the Nordic countries you know um questioning about by, by, by some of the the I mean like Greenland's entertaining the idea of like you know they've had home rule from Denmark for so long, but what, um, you know, 
to, to what end? Like what, you know, what, what, um, what would independence look like? Um, mm. or, or another thing I can just say, and this is something I, I often speak just to like first day of Swedish class, right? When students come to take first year Swedish and, you know, I just, of course I'm speaking with them in English at that point, but just trying to help, help like, what do you know about Sweden? You know, why did you take this class? Why are yes. you studying Swedish? at right. Like, um, we always get some heritage learners who have like family background, uh, and I can yeah, understand that. And we have people who are really interested in hockey or, you know, just various things that music, certain types of music or, um, you know, it's not Bergman <laughs> nowadays anymore, but it's, um, no. you know, other Alas. things that drop, draw people in and, um, you know, but when they think about who the Swedish people are, I think they're very, like when I, when I share with them that, you know, today in Sweden, like one out of every five Swedish people is either foreign born or has one parent who is foreign born. Wow. Like, I think that, you know, so then they think about where, and then they're like, where are they coming from? And I think that goes to your question about immigration, but I also exactly. think it goes to your question about like, well, what, that it's not an easy thing to say that, um, you know, so I think, right, like when, when these things happen, a country is always having to think, well, okay, we thought we were this, but, you know, but now, you know, things are moving in different directions. I mean, things are, are really shifting with, with right, and that the makes establishment um, of the welfare state. Well, for who, right? There yeah, exactly. For and those shifts make people, um, I mean, it makes some people uncomfortable. It's happening in this country, obviously. The other thing you're saying that I think is important about the indigeneity uh, issues. It's, that's really global. And I think that would be surprising to a lot of people. You know, we think, well, it's the U.S. and Canada, but no, it's also Aust uh, Australia and Scandinavia, as you're pointing out, which is important to, mm -hmm. to understand. Um, we are winding down, unfortunately, which I always regret in this podcast, but I wonder if in the last couple of minutes you could um, make it, make make the case for Scandinavian studies at Gustavus. I mean, why? And first of all, just quickly, why? I mean, is it, it's not, it's not typical, right, for a small college to have such a department, even a small college with Scandinavian roots, or am I wrong? Does St. Olaf have such a department? I, I don't know. Yeah, well, and I know you asked earlier, so Scandinavian studies exists at like some of the, you know, when I was at University of Wisconsin-Madison, there were, I think, 73 different language options students Good Lord. could choose from. It was amazing. Wow. Um, and uh, so you have like places around the U.S. where, you know, Scandinavian studies exist in the realm of like being able to study world languages, literatures, and cultures. But then you have some of these schools like St. Olaf has a, a Norwegian department. It's cool that they just started, I think, um, Speaking of indigeneity, uh, uh, you can do a certificate on Sami and indigeneity there. Um, Augustana in Rock Island has a Swedish immigrant connection, like Gustavus does. Um, but there are just a handful of these of these schools, like Gustavus, who have. You know, I mean, they think about McAllister, right, in St. Paul. I think they're, right. you know, they still play the bagpipes and they. You know, right. still, I think there's someone, you know, wearing a kilt or like they still kind of play with those aspects of their Scottish. Yes. Um, and, um, 
you know, I think I think Gustavus um, as an institution has long thought about its its connections and it honored, I would say this, like honored the fact that it was founded by Swedish immigrants. So the case for Scandinavian studies at Gustavus, I think is, you know, I think it's important that a place understands its history. I'm speaking to a historian. I know I'm, I imagine you'd agree with me, but that a place understands its history, but that it also understands how that history has been, what that history was, but also that history is, is in the plural, right? Like there are many yes. histories, yes. there are many histories here. And I think yes. that the college, you know, as all places should, as we should, as people just continue to question um, the histories. We have to know the histories. We have to try to know them. It's a slippery thing, right? But we have to try to keep understanding them. And that's an ongoing process. Uh, just like, you know, all learning is an ongoing process. And I think our department, while we are a distinct uh, um, academic program at Gustavus, many of our courses, I think, help students um, to, and I think we as faculty are often called upon by the college to, you know, and I think we appreciate that. We, we appreciate being able to help the college understand those aspects of its history and not just like maybe get lost in nostalgia, if that makes any right. sense, right? Yes, like, it makes a lot I mean, of there sense. There is maybe tension or resistance there, but I, I think there's, that's just a very kind of delicate dance that always has to keep, <laughs> keep going on is like, I mean, I think when we think about this institution, when we think about our country, when we think about the world, we're always just having to kind of keep trying to understand and negotiate um, the stories, right? The stories that exist, the stories that that maybe don't yet, and um, that we can try to come come to understand and to tell and, and yeah, I, I mean, all together. all well said, um, and, and, a, and I think an appropriate place to end. It's it's on a liberal mm -hmm. arts note, uh, on an interdisciplinary note. But what I loved about what you just said is plural histories. Um, one of textbook I've used sometimes is titled I think it's titled American Histories, and I point that out to the students. Right, plural, even within one nation, there are multiple histories. Even within one institution. Um, a small liberal arts college, multiple histories. So here's to histories, <laughs> here's to stories, <laughs> um, here's to teaching. I'm I'm on sabbatical. I'm you know I kind I don't want to. <laughs> I I feel for you. You're teaching, but I hope <laughs> I hope it goes well. Um, this because the semester has just started. This has been a pleasure. I've never been to Scandinavia. You've been many times. I know. I want to go. I've never been there. One day, um, and we'll get together for a uh, fika. Right? Is that what a coffee? Right? Yeah. You and yes. I here or. or, or in St. Peter. So, so thank you so much. Take good care. I hope I haven't made you late for class either, by the way. <laughs> no, 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 okay. no, I'm not. I, I have another All thing right. in a little bit of time, but um, thanks so All much, right. Greg. It's really been a pleasure. To Kirsten, always a pleasure. Take good care. Thank you. You bye too. Bye. Take good care. Bye-bye. See ya. Learning for Life at Gustavus is produced by J.J. Aiken and Matthew Dobosensky of the Gustavus Office of Marketing. Gustavus graduate Will Clark, class of 20, who also provides technical expertise to the podcast, and me. 
The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Gustavus Adolphus College.